Hello, this is Dr. Yolanda Watson Spiva, President at Complete College America. On today's CCA on the Air podcast, I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Dr. Katrina Caldwell, Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Chief Diversity Officer at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Dr. Caldwell. Thank you, Dr. Spiva. It's a delight to be here, you and your listening audience. So Dr. Caldwell, again, thank you. Um, as I think about your role as a pretty big role as Vice Pro Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Chief Diversity Officer, um, I think about, you know, um, essentially it seems to me that you're trying to create a more inclusive environment. You and your colleagues, I'm sure the president, of course, by creating this type of role has really set the stage for making sure that the, in, the environment at Johns Hopkins is welcoming, but it's also sustainable for the new students that are being served. And I say new in terms of um, historically represented, underrepresented, um, um, economically disadvantaged and other um, historically minoritized and marginalized students. But I would also dare say that for students who are even traditional types of students, that the, the importance is to make sure that the campus is safe and welcoming for them as well. Can you talk a little bit about your role beyond what I've said? That's, that's just my take at it. I'd love to hear how you would describe the work that you do at Johns Hopkins. Now, that's actually a very apt description of the work um, that I have the pleasure of doing, um, particularly in the most recent moments in our history the focus on climate, it ha has been an important one at the forefront for lots of folks. Um, you probably know that historically in these roles, most folks came in looking at demography. So who is on the staff or who are the students that we're educating and spending a lot of time about access and opportunity. And that's important work. And it's, it's still ongoing because our institutions have not reached parity. We, we still, need more work around access and removing barriers for folks to have access. Um, but in the last couple of months in particular, there's been more conversations about the climate and the culture that folks need to navigate even when they've gained access to these institutions. And higher education is in sort of a, a shift in the way we strategically think about our culture and climate. I always say, it's almost like when you invite someone to your home, you need to make sure that you have the supports and the needs um, that they have addressed when you invite them to your home is the same thing in our institution. If you enroll students, and many of us actively pursue these students and create pathways and pipelines for them, and then we bring them into hostile environments. Mm -hmm. And um, more and more we're having conversations about it is our responsibility to make sure our home is in order. And that when folks come and they join our um, institution, that they're met by folks who want to teach them, who want to work with them, who want to train them and develop them. Um, and, and that's a part of the mission, or should be the part of the mission of every higher education institution. And it's the role of the chief diversity officer to help leadership understand how to do that in every aspect of what we do, from what we teach um, to what our support services are, um, to what our teams look like, to who students are gonna have access to, um, to bring in diverse students and not have a diverse faculty um, doesn't serve our students well. They need to see themselves reflected in the classrooms. You use the word safety, and that's definitely an important piece uh, for our students. Safety has become a weaponized word in mm -hmm. our environment. When people hear safety, they think we want to coddle our students. That's not what it means. It means that our students can reach their full potential. 
uh, that they can thrive at our institution without feeling like their personhood is under attack. Um, and that's something we all should want in our workplaces. We definitely should want it up with for our students who are in their early stages of professional development. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's really sort of the basic tenets of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That we should be able to, when we come into any spaces, any space, especially the higher ed space, to feel safe and, and connected. Um, as I think about the work that we do here at Complete College America, of course, completion is in our name. I think you, you talked a little bit about access and, um, and support, right? But I do understand that that's a through line toward completion. When you pursue these students for admission, the goal is not just to have them to enroll, but it is to have them to complete. Can you talk about the through line between how diversity, equity, and, and, and inclusion connects with completion? Absolutely. And I, I would suggest that anyone who is sharing their um, data statistics from their institution in terms of their strategic diversity efforts if they're not talking about equity gaps or they're not talking about support services for students' persistence, they're not talking about graduation rates, um, then they're not really doing DNI work. Um, they're, they're doing the diversity part, they're, they're creating access, but the goal of students entering education is for them to have better opportunities on the other end. Okay. So that means everything. That means them, I mean, those students who are from minoritized and marginalized group having the same professional outcomes. They should have the same career opportunity. There should be no disparity in those students' ability to be able to get into majors. Some of our majors that we know are so in order state for STEM, for instance, and some of those high-performing majors. So part of the, the, the work of DNI is to focus on the, um, uh, the pipeline, but it's also more important to make sure that we're retaining folks when we recruit them. So we're setting students up for success on the front end so that we make sure that on the back end, they're able to thrive and move through our system in order to reach whatever intended outcomes that they have per set for themselves personally and professionally. Yeah, and as you think about, you know, the structures, right? So I know Johns Hopkins has had its own um, sort of reflexive reconciliation about its history and its storied past. And as we think about, you know, just the systems and, structure, and structures of these United States, um, they tend to be rooted in some history of uh, either enslavement, um, some connection with a racist past or history. How, were, how have you all been and how are you all looking to do so in the future, reconciling with your past in order to create a more um, inclusive future for students in the, in, into the future? Yeah, so I think this is something that every institution has to face, particularly the institutions that were created in the United States during the same era as Johns Hopkins. And that's a reconciliation, but that reconciliation starts with knowing the full history. Mm -hmm. And we all know that the history is complex, and some histories are contested. But if you don't, particularly a research institution like our own, better understand its um, engagement with slavery in particular or any of those um, systems of oppression throughout our history, then we're not doing our job as an institution. Uh, we value truth telling, right? It is part of the mantra at Hopkins that truth is important. Well, if truth starts with self-reflection and self-awareness. Um, and if you don't have a sense of um, the implications of that, then you, uh, implications of your own truth, right, or your own self-awareness or awakening, um, then you can't make the strides that are necessary to move the needle forward. People won't trust you. I mean, we're in Baltimore. Baltimore has a storied history with slavery, um, the enslavement of, of people. 
And we can't be an anchor institution that we thrive to be. We can't have the type of impact we want in the community if people don't trust us. So we have to be honest about what our history is, but first we have to know it in all of its complexity. When I think about your role, the interesting part for me is that so many institutions do not have a VP for um, diversity and inclusion or a chief diversity officer type of role. And sometimes if they do, don't, they don't report directly to the president, um, which as you know, tends to provide some level of gravitas, of influence and, um, and uh, capacity to make change. Can you talk a little bit about um, the ways that you've seen these roles situated for success and those that are not situated for success and any advice you would give to any of our practitioner, um, our practitioners in the audience who are listening, who are looking to create a diversity and inclusion um, priority on their campus, but don't necessarily know where to start, especially if they don't have that high level position reporting to the president who can really make it make a change. Absolutely. Look at that. Now we could talk about that during the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a fascination of mine to sort of watch the um, evolution of these uh, positions. So I've, I've been doing this work now for almost 28 years. And, and um, when I started out, you know, we, there was no professionalization of these organizations. I don't even think uh, the National Association of Diversity Offices in Higher Education, which is the body that brings us together to talk about this work, Natahi, was in existence at that time. Uh, many of the principles um, that they've moved forward, I think, started maybe 10, 12 years ago. So there was no real formalization, professionalization of this role. Um, and so it's emerged over time. And so I, I, I asked people, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Dr. Damon uh, Williams, who writes a book that's called Chief Diversity Officers. Um, and, uh, he and Dr. Uh, Ward, I think, is the co-author of that book. And they talk about the different roles. And so they talk about the departmental role. They talk about what's called a profile role. Mm -hmm. um, and, but the important piece of all of that, right, and the important piece of all of the different types of uh, roles is a couple of key things. And one is understanding your context because the context matters. So if you're gonna to report to the, the chief officers, so you're gonna to report to the CEO, the president, that's, it needs to be an organization that this where influence lies, that that person has the influence that is necessary in order for you to be successful. Mm -hmm. uh, I report to the chief academic officers. So I report to the provost and I've, re I've reported to the provost. Um, and for me, the fact that all the deans, the academic deans, all the faculty report up to the provost is significant um, in terms of the context in which I work because mm -hmm. that's a particular power base that allows me to move diversity, equity, inclusion forward. So that's one, understanding your context. I mean, the second one is setting up the right supports. So you wanna make sure that whatever the expectations are for you, and I ask anyone who's gonna go into this work, you need to ask them, what are my KPIs? What are my key performance indicators? Don't just say, we just want you to come in and do diversity work, which a lot of people say, or we want you to move our diversity, equity, strategic planning forward. No, I need to know what are the three to five things that you're going to use to determine that I've been successful in this role. Because the role is vast mm -hmm. and diversity is everyone's responsibility. And so you don't wanna get caught up in trying to do everyone's job. You wanna hold everyone accountable for their portion um, of this effort. And then the third thing I will say uh, in addition to sort of context and making sure you have this right supports 
is for you to do your own research and be clear about what kind of diversity, equity, inclusion officer you are. Mm. If you don't specialize in a particular area, don't try to do that. Use your networks, set up consultants, create sort of a hub and spoke model where you have folks who are surrounding you who have the expertise that you don't have. If you don't have EEOC or compliance expertise, don't try to engage in that work in a deep way. Use your resources uh, because you don't wanna set your own self up to make promises that you can't deliver on. And each one of us have a specialization, areas of specialization that we're deep in, that we understand. And the, what you do alternatively is then find those other folks who can help build out um, your, your expertise, particularly if you can't build a team. Um, and I've had the pleasure of doing both, both being the one and only Yes, chief, chief diversity officer, and that's had some pros and cons. And you know, my most recent position at the University of Mississippi, where I ran a portfolio, and that has its pros and cons. So mm-hmm. it, it it's it's different depending on the context of supports and um, where you're situated at the institution. No, I appreciate that, and I'm sure some of our um, junior um, develop. I'm sorry, junior diversity and inclusion officers would appreciate the advice that you've given them in order to sort of create a a path and a trajectory for their career. Um, I did wanna delve deeper into your structure currently at Johns Hopkins in terms of you reporting to the chief academic officer. And I think that's very interesting, especially to the point that you made around the fact that the deans and faculty, of course, report up through that that structure. Can you talk a little bit about then how that plays out in terms of, you mentioned earlier about diversifying faculty. So when we're talking about hiring and retaining faculty of color in particular, but diverse faculty writ large, but then also in terms of influencing the curriculum and ensuring that students can see truth in the curriculum, but also see their own history, their own histories, whether you're from a um, black indigenous um, uh, Latinx um, or other populations, how do we make sure then that those curricula reflect that? So it seems like you're uniquely situated to influence both of those spheres. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think the benefit of you know, both. So I'll start with the smaller piece. So for me, the provost reports to the president, which allows me to have influence on the operational side of the house. So things like HR, um, our facilities management, um, university safety and security, economic development, community development, um, alumni affairs, all report to the president. So reporting to the provost who sits on that team does allow me to have some input. And, and the president is very accessible at Hopkins, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, I call him Dr. But Ron Daniels, he's a, he's a lawyer by trade, but uh, Ron is very accessible. And so I spend a lot of time, particularly now we're going through a process called the Roadmap on Diversity and Inclusion, which is our diversity strategic plan. He leads that effort. And so I spend a great uh, deal of my day talking with him or his team about what that next five-year plan is going to look like. So that's the sort of the up, managing up. The sort of managing across the portfolio of the provost, the faculty vice provost is there, the, the student affairs vice provost is there, health and wellness, career development, curricular design, and the deans. All of that is part of the provost's portfolio. So you're absolutely right. We have impact on all of those different aspects of the student experience, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom. And that you know gives us, in my, in my opinion, a pretty wide purview for how we could impact um, the experiences of our students. 
Thank you. So CCA is really about, um, besides our policy um, influence, and we try to influence policy at the federal and the state levels in terms of um, sort of grassroots and grass tops outreach with legislators, members of Congress, et cetera. But we also pride ourselves on really being able to take um, best practices, data-driven best practices that are proven around trying to scale them at the, at the institutional or the system level to transform those institutions or systems. So as I think about your work, I can imagine, um, especially as you're trying to sort of do some things from the inside out or you're pushing things in, but then also because of your unique positioning, you being able to work as, through the systems in, in tandem with those other vice provosts that you mentioned in order to get things done. Do you find it harder when you're talking about trying to uh, make some transformational change on your campus, whether it's about policies that have been on the books that need to be changed, whether it's practices or whether it's perspectives, and I'll say those three because that's the way CCA thinks about these things. <laughs> but, um, you know, do you find it harder to be an insider trying to do that? Or and I'm sure at some point in your life, you've been a consultant trying to do it from the outside. How do you find um, the actual transformational work on the ground um, in your role to, to be, is it easier? Is it harder? Is it both? Tell me more. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what I talked about earlier in terms of positionality, so how you position yourself um, in, in the context that you report to can make that easier or, or harder, but absolutely, definitely. It's when you're inside an institution, you know, you have to be the, the loaded word political. So you, you, you have to, you, you need to figure out ways to build relationships with folks so that you can have the difficult conversations that you need to have in order to move the needle forward. And then you need to figure out when it's appropriate to lean in because at some point we move past this level of trying to build consensus. I was just on a call right before this and I said, this is a leadership moment. Um, and what I mean by that is that at certain points of time, we have to just say this policy needs to be changed. We've, we've built co consensus. We've heard all the folks who don't necessarily agree with our path forward. But for what we know is necessary for us to move the needle in strategic ways of diversity, equity, inclusion, we must move this way. We must move in this direction. And we have to, that, that becomes a moment where leadership has to step up um, and, and do its work. Um, and, I, and, I, and that's important, um, but I've also brought in consultants to help me have difficult conversations yes. um, in ways that are more meaningful. And sometimes you're sitting there like, I've been telling you this for six months, <laughs> yes. that we need to move in this way. Mm -hmm. um, so, so knowing your leadership and knowing what influences them and who influences them. So I always, I'll tell every chief diversity officer, keep your peer data in your back pocket. Yeah. So you can say, well, Brown does it this way, or mm -hmm. Harvard does it this way, or Cornell does it this way. So the people who my president feels are his peers, right, and the ones that influence his decision-making um, uh, process is always helpful to sort of know where they are. And sometimes it's good to know where they aren't, because yeah. then you become a leader in that particular space. But yes, yeah, sometimes you often have to call on your friends in other places <laughs> to come in and help you um, move something strategically forward. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question, especially because you've been at this work um, before it was even a, an official field or sector, right? <laughs> so I know you understand the feast and the famine that this work can be, right? And I'm going to focus on the famine for a second, because I think what I've also seen on campuses is I don't want to say it's intentional. I'm going to be benign in my suppositions here. This is not intentional, but that somehow 
this DE&I work tends to be the space that has no budget and um, no ability to really move things forward, but there's a person in a role sometimes, right? So it's the um, positional leadership. They have a space, but don't necessarily have, you know, the resources to help them. Talk through, and I'm sure you've experienced this, where you've had to operate in famine to move some initiatives forward, and what advice you would give to those folks who either are in a formal position, you know, or a de facto position leading um, DE&I efforts on their campuses or within their systems. What advice would you give, especially if they are budget constrained or are budget non-existent? Yeah, I've been there. So I, I definitely understand the famine. And uh, there are places that you will be surprised to have a famine. Yes. <laughs> that don't have the resources you think they have mm -hmm. um, just because of their name recognition. Um, but I would just say, you know, first of all, for, for very briefly, I need to talk to the leadership who is putting these folks in these vulnerable positions because that's Thank what you. you're doing. Yes. You're setting them up to not be successful. And I understand that, you know, in the 1970s, 80s, when we started to see folks who were sort of tapped, mostly pulled from faculty or other places who were people of color who were asked to serve as advisors to the president or the chancellor or whatever, that that was the role. That's what we understand. We understand that chief advisor role. That role has shifted, just like every other role has shifted. Our CFOs aren't one individual people anymore. Our HR folks aren't just a woman down the street who does HR. They are professionalized roles. And as a leader, if you have one single role in an institution, moderate to large size, and no assigned budget when that person comes in the door. Most of the time I talk to, I counsel or mentor folks who wanna do this work, and they say things like, well, they told me when I come, we'll talk about what the expectations are. Mm -hmm. Or I look at the job description and I say, they're asking you to do the work of five people. Mm -hmm. You need to go back to them and say, given the resources that you're providing me and the support you're providing me, and more important, the compensation that mm -hmm. you're providing me, I can only do two of these 10 things that you have listed here, mm -hmm. unless you're going to bring on a team. So I would just say to be realistic. Now, I also counsel folks who are new to this space who want to go in and be, they want to be an inaugural DNI person, or they want to have their first DNI role, and they're willing to just do it, just to jump in and get their feet wet, get the experience. But it can be grueling mm -hmm. and it can be very lonely and isolating. And you can feel like you're not being successful when you do not have the supports necessary mm -hmm. to do this work. So you have to be very careful not to set yourself up to, to, to be put to put yourself in a position where you're already behind mm -hmm. once you get in. So doing an assessment, please doing an assessment and having a conversation with someone who has been in a seasoned chief diversity officer role and have them look at your job description and say, is what they're asking me to do reasonable given the particular um, design that they have in place for this role? Um, it, should I ask different types of questions, right? Um, like I said, even though I've been in this role uh, for a number of years in different, in different institutions, I have consultants, friends, network that I talk to about that particular thing. So you just wanna make sure you do all your homework. Mm -hmm. So as it relates to the work at Johns Hopkins, what are your top priorities, um, Dr. Caldwell, for, um, I know you're working on the, the next five-year strategic plan, but if you could talk a little bit more about the things you're working on right now, and maybe even give us, give us a, a, a peekaboo look into what might maybe coming down the pike in the future. Yeah, so beyond the strategic um, plan that we're working on for the next five years is 
to try to build the capacity of folks on our campus to be able to develop their own um, efforts in DNI. So um, we have um, uh, across our nine um, schools, we have DNI practitioners mm-hmm. who are working to, to, to move efforts forward in each of the schools. So really working with them to make sure that they feel comfortable, they have the capacity, they have the supports they need. Um, so we have that network internal that mm-hmm. will allow us to be able to do that. We're also looking um, institution-wise, many of you know, that was just announced um, that we received a $150 million um, donation to support what's called the Vivian Thomas um, Scholars Initiative. So it's an opportunity over the next eight to 10 years for us to increase the pipeline and pathways of students from underrepresented groups in the STEM fields. So it's, it's a top up for some of our summer programs that already do excellent work in this area. So they have more capacity uh, to, to, to allow more students to come to Hopkins. It's bringing in a number of PhD students every year fully funded through this program. Um, it will allow us to provide supports for those students to your point to make sure that they're successful. And it also will allow us to do um, some summer bridge programs on a post back uh, for folks who might feel like they need a little bit more support before they actually start the PhD program. So I'm really excited about the Building Thomas Scholars Initiative and uh, Dr. Damani Pickett from our institution is leading that charge. He's a Morehouse grad. <laughs> so um, as a graduate of Spelman, I feel particularly um, excited about working with him on this initiative. Awesome, awesome. Speaking of which, um, Dr. Caldwell, why are you called to do this work and what inspired you to do this? Why, why do you do this? And especially in higher education where I'm certain you could have been in any other sector. Yes, I, I, I get asked that question a lot. And, and the, 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 the answer really doesn't change. I mean, I, I grew up um, in, a, in, in Memphis, Tennessee in a place where I really didn't know um, a lot about my own history. And um, it wasn't until I went to college that I even knew what Memphis was known, most known for, right? So most folks know it for, some folks know it for Elvis, but most of us know it was where Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that history growing up and got to college and I realized I didn't know where I grew up. I grew up in a, a neighborhood in Orange Mound, which is the first neighborhood in the United States built for and by black folks and black families had no idea um, that part of my history. And so when I went to to graduate school, my degrees were in English literature and I wanted to be an English professor. That was the goal, uh, was to be an English professor. Uh, The summer after my first year, I got to work with these students in TRIO. And some folks know of the TRIO or the title, Title III, Title III programs um, through the US Department of Education and met these young folks from Chicago public schools. I fell in love with teaching through them. I was teaching them um, to do um, writing comprehension. I was teaching uh, writing composition and they were teaching me how to take the L and they were teaching me how to navigate Chicago and helping me understand the university from their uh, viewpoint and all of the obstacles um, to their success. And more importantly, they taught me that their stories were not much different than my own, right? I grew up in a high school where no one, none of the, you know, white teachers believed that we should go to college. My white guidance counselor told me, even though I was number two in our class, that I should go to technical school. Hmm. So I grew up with low expectation setting from folks, some folks who were in 
um, my um, school system wasn't wasn't where my high school, but I had a teacher. I, I both Miss Cook all the time, Miss Minnie Cook um, from Memphis High School. She taught me computers, but she also taught me I could do anything I wanted to do, anything I set my mind to. And I hope to be that for some folks. I, I hope to I, in these roles you get farther and farther away from students. Yeah. But I hope that there's a student out there who said I made a difference in their life because they make them in mind. Every time I engage with a young person in higher ed, it changes me, right? It energizes me to continue to do this work. Absolutely. And we're thinking about that um, as you try to balance your own personal life. You talked even about your own personal history and then trying to be there for so many other people, right? So we work you and I both work, we don't work directly with students, but we work on their behalf, right? And so um, as you think about that, how do you balance it? And do you have any advice um, or last words of encouragement that you might give to keep people hopeful about, you know, how they can be self-sustaining, but also how they can still be, um, you know, giving to this community of learners as we operate in higher education? Yeah, so that whole uh, Martin Luther King quote about the, the arc towards justice, right? How long it is and how difficult it is, but it still bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. I believe to do this work, you have to believe that. You believe you have to, you can move the needle forward. You believe that you can make a difference in the lives of students who look like me and you. Mm-hmm. You have to go into this work believing that. If not, you will not be successful. You won't, you won't enjoy the journey. Um, you won't work as hard as it's necessary to do um, to move the needle forward. And you won't be able to, what's the word, overcome the obstacles because there are many to this work work. There are still folks who don't believe that we need to have designated resources or individuals to focus on DNI. And given that, um, there's a lot of resistance. Um, and so that can make this work difficult. So if you're not convinced and committed, um, that you are going to make a change and you're going to stay grounded in the principles, become the content expert that you need to do this work. You got to be overprepared and over ready. Um, you, you always got to walk into a room and know your stuff mm-hmm. um, because we need you. We need you to be that kind of professional. Um, you know, even if you're put in this role and assigned it or elevated without much work or effort, put in the work. There's too much at stake. There's too much at risk if you don't do so. So do that, but also have fun. Surround yourself by people who can laugh, laugh with you. Don't take yourself so seriously in this space and try to find some ways to decompress. I tell folks, I don't watch popular television that that deal with race and and diversity issues. So I've missed them all. So from the help to the butler, to the the whatever they are, I don't even know the names of it names of these shows, I don't watch them because I want my, my television to be my place of enjoyment and, and refuge and solace. Um, but I, 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 and I say that effort, the, the mental, physical, emotional, psychological effort that's needed in order to overcome the obstacles and barriers that we face. I say that for my nine to five. Okay. Well, I'm going to do a gotcha now. Any team <laughs> recommendations for the, for the, for the listening audience? You said TV recommendations? Yeah, anything good on TV this summer? Oh, man. I, you know, I'm so bad. I've been watching. I just started. I'm not even going to remember the name of this um, uh, new show, Girls Run, Run the World. Girls okay. Run the World, I think it's this new stars. 
uh, show that I'm really falling in love with. Um, but right now I'm so backed up on all my television shows that I normally watch. I'm a Chicago PD, Chicago fan. So I watch a lot of that, spending so many years in Chicago. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it's just, I just like to watch, just go on Netflix and find different things to just relax my mind that, that have nothing at all to do with the work that I do every day. I love it. Dr. Katrina Caldwell, Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Chief Diversity Officer at the Johns Hopkins University. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.